Yeah, he is holy, isn't he? Awesome. Thank you for your presence in this place, God. Thank you, Father, that it increases and that you inhabit the praises of your people. Father, every time we're together, I just sense it rising, God. You doing more. Healing is here. Life is here. Mercy is here and grace is here and joy is here. Because God is here. Father, fill our lives. Fill our lives. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you can be seated. Wow. You know, I don't... uh, we don't try to like make it about a person or a, a thing other than God, but um, our worship team's just hearing from God and just trying to lead us in such a phenomenal way. I just wanted to thank them publicly. They're just doing a great job. I'm just <clears throat> thrilled with, with that right there. Um, the same notes uh, that you were given that had uh, this week's events, the other side have the message for today. And there's a few fill-in-the-blanks, and so you might want a pen or a pencil. You can use the online version, the U-Notes, and if you learn best by just listening, that's great too. I really only have one announcement, <clears throat> and it's a, um, something I'm excited about. We tried for several years to be able to, um, to get uh, this here for Jubilee, um, or at least Jubilee to host it. It's not just for Jubilee, it's for the body of Christ at large, and especially in our area. There is a ministry called Perspectives, and it really deals with um, why you're here, what it's all about. If you want to grow spiritually and you're looking for like, man, I'm, I'm serious about this, and I really want to have the right uh, worldview of, of, as a believer, how I'm to go through this world, what God has for me, beyond just the idea of, of the Christian lifestyle, but really, what is it that I'm here for? Uh, This class called Perspectives uh, deals with that, and it's hosted at different churches. It's um, it sells out. It's it's a uh, it's a phenomenal class, and we finally finally were able to procure it here. It begins this Tuesday uh, at Lone Tree six thirty, and so I just want to invite you if you are looking for spiritual growth, and in particular, you know we're talking right now about the whole built for purpose thing, and we're talking about identity and purpose and why we're here and why our lives count and, and, and what it is that God wants from us, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> then, then really um, beyond what I can do in, in 40 minutes in a message, this idea of perspectives I think would really be helpful to you. So um, what we do need though, it's many churches are involved in it and uh, there's only so much room. So there is a sign-up table. It's out there in the foyer. You can't miss it. If you wanted to uh, check it out online, jfc.org slash missions, because it has to do with the idea of outreach too. So you could find it right there. But I just want to encourage you, if you are really about right now spiritual growth and really trying to understand identity and purpose, I think this class would be uh, maybe one of the most brilliant classes you could take. They have speakers come in literally from all over the world. I, these, 
people that we couldn't get in this church by ourselves, to be honest with you. So God's done something for us that's really phenomenal. Uh, I'm not trying to hype it. I'm really trying to just keep it low-key here because there is only so much room in it. But I do want to encourage you, if that appeals to you in any way, shape, or form, you'd want to be <clears throat> excuse me, a part of, uh, of this class uh, right here. Okay, uh, enough of that. Let me just jump in. Our series is called Built for Purpose. And each week we're taking the built for and then adding in a sentence. So the first one, built ultimately, first and foremost, for God. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, in that identity, purpose, why we exist, how to build our lives. Uh, this time of year, I've mentioned, you know, January, so many people get serious about different parts of their lives. They're going to lose weight. They're going to get in shape. They're going to get their finances in shape. I think the most important thing that you can make a decision on is your spiritual life. Make sure that your spiritual life is going in the right direction. You're going to be someplace a year from now spiritually. And if you're not intentional about it, you're going to drift spiritually. And that's not what God wants. And this is a year, here's what I know. When you get your life uh, in order spiritually, it seems like everything else comes pretty easy. But when that part is messed up, it seems like everything else comes. It's so difficult and fits and starts. And so that's, that's really what the series is about. That's what we're teaching on. Today's a little bit different in that there's a demonstration, uh, an action point, something that we want you to do today to be a part of. We're going to take the Bible, and when it says to do these things in order to be healed, do these things in order to be forgiven, do these things in order to be blessed, we're actually going to practice those things today. I'm going to give you a chance. So it's a little bit different message than what we normally do. I'm asking you to have an open heart. I'm asking you to trust. I'm asking you maybe go outside of like, uh, hey, pastor, I've got these uh, 19 inches on this seat, and I'm really comfortable right here. Can you give me 22 inches today? I just be willing to stretch a little bit more. There's a little, little something here today that I think uh, God would have for you. So the title of it, what I'm going to teach about this weekend, Built for Freedom. Ultimately, most important, the reason that Jesus himself uh, died, it's not simply so that you have uh, access to heaven. It's important. I get that. But Jesus said, I came to bring life and not just any life, but abundant life. Abundant life. And abundant life is not heaven and eternity. Abundant life is the life we live here right now. And part of that life is freedom. The Bible actually says it was for freedom's sake alone that Jesus died to make you free. I'll show you the scripture. Uh, it's in Galatians. Paul wrote it. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for, what's the word? Freedom. It doesn't add anything else to it. It doesn't take away anything else. It just makes that statement. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And then it adds a caveat. Stand firm because you've been made free. Not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Real quick, that idea of a yoke. Uh, it's an old-fashioned word. Uh, probably, though, if you've watched any type of a Western or any movie where they had uh, some type of beast of burden that was pulling a wagon or doing some kind of a work, uh, what teamed the two animals together, that's a yoke. And the yoke keeps an animal from going and doing its own thing. They have to work together. Uh, in, in one sense, it's positive because it holds them together so they get the work done. But in this sense, Paul uses the idea that sin is a yoke that the enemy puts on us so that we can't go and do what we want to do. We're, we're stuck. We're bound. We're, we're, uh, we're, 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 we're caught up and we're used by the enemy through sin. So the Bible tells us that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Your job in that is to stand firm in the work of Jesus and don't let yourself be burdened again uh, by a yoke of slavery. So I'm going to talk today then about what I think are probably the twin yokes of slavery, the thing that you need to stay free from, the thing that the enemy uses to, uh, to, to burden us, to trip us up, to trap us, to entangle us. Uh, but first, I thought maybe what I would do, I would do this. Let me give you a definition of what I think freedom is. We live in a time, a day, that people, they misunderstand what freedom is. Uh, uh, if you were to ask the average person, hey, freedom, uh, most people would think freedom is the ability to do what you want, when you want, how you want, without anybody telling you any different. That's, that's the average person's idea of freedom. And I guess in one sense, that is, uh, that is uh, what freedom means. Freedom's the ability to do what you want. But really, what we've confused today, uh, that's not freedom, that's license. License is I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, uh, regardless of what it means to anybody else. Freedom, biblically speaking, here's what freedom is. Freedom is the absence of bondage in your life. So you're not really a free person because you can do what you want. You're free because you don't have anything entangling you. You don't have anything holding you back. You're free because the enemy is not controlling you. Does that make sense? You're free because there's not some type of a, uh, of a uh, um, I, I, you know, some sin issue that's, uh, that, that's, that's, that's holding on to you and, and won't let go. There's not an addiction. There, there's not an anger problem that you can't get free from. There's not a relationship that's so manipulated you. There's not a, a, something that's happened in your life that defines you. Jesus made you free so that he can define who you are, not the world defining who you are. Does that make sense? And so we're built for freedom. God wants us to be free. We think that freedom is something that comes with our constitution and a bill of rights. But those things are based on the original freedom maker, which is God our Father. He designed you to be free. And freedom, again, is not the ability to do what you want. Freedom is the absence of bondage. You're free if there's no bondage in your life. And in fact, maybe the other way to say that is this. You're a slave. If there's bondage, you're not truly free if there's bondage in your life. So Jesus died to make us free. So when I wrote then the message and Paul talks about it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand fast in what Christ has done and don't allow yourself to be entangled by the yoke of slavery, the yoke of bondage, the yoke of sin. I wrote down, there's many things that you could go after, but I wrote down what I think are probably two Huge issues that just end up entangling, tripping, trapping, and messing up so many believers. So the twin yokes of slavery, the first one just simply is this, the word shame. You're free when you don't have bondage in your life. You're not free if there's bondage. And what I deal with so often in so many people, but believers, uh, I think one of the tools of the enemy that he's so effective with is shame. Shame, listen to this, shame operates, it gets its power from the darkness. Shame works best in secret, when things are not known. Uh, the way that the enemy loves to work in our lives is to, is to tempt us, to get us to trip, and then isolate us and tries to hide, get us to hide that thing so no one else knows about it. it you empower shame when it's kept in the darkness. 
But the minute shame comes to the light, there's that, that, that instant thing of, uh-oh, people know, but then there's the freedom that comes with, now I can move beyond it. As long as it's secret, it holds you in its grip. But once it comes to the light, you're set free. So when the Bible says that Jesus sets us free, part of what he does, the Bible says that he is the light of the world. He, was, he came to the darkness, and we're called children of light. God calls us to the light, man. That is where the power of God works at. The book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 1, uses uh, an old-fashioned word to, to describe the idea of God setting us free or the work of Jesus from shame. It says, uh, now there is no, what's that word? Condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. The, the twin word for condemnation is shame. So here's what the Bible is saying. For those who are in Christ, there is no shame. You have been set free from shame, from condemnation. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the secret stuff, and that trips him up. When God looks at you, if you're in Christ, he sees the work of Christ. You're free, man. He is not holding that over your head. He is not threatening you with that. It is not something that is blocking the way. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. All right, so let's talk then a little bit about what shame is, how shame works, the difference between shame and guilt, between conviction and condemnation. Uh, probably they're best described uh, with, with a couple of sentences. Um, guilt is, I did something wrong and therefore I feel guilty. Anyone in this room ever felt guilty? Anybody in this room ever done something wrong? Of course, right? All of us. It's the human condition. We all are born with a fallen nature. Uh, it is what we are forgiven and set free from. It's the work of Christ. But here's guilt works this way. Guilt, uh, the message of guilt is uh, I have done something wrong. The message of shame is uh, I am bad. So guilt is, I've done something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Um, conviction is, if you tell a lie. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is, you are not acting like the person that Christ has called you to be. Condemnation is, you are a liar. Do you get the difference? They both might do the same thing. One roots itself in identity and one roots itself in a battle that you have with sin. And so shame is this thing that the enemy uses to try to lock us into uh, an identity issue that you are not this person, that you are who I say. In fact, many times uh, the idea of shame gives us a label and people walk around with a label on their life. How powerful are labels? Some people live their whole life with an invisible label that determines how they see the world, how they talk to people, how far they go, the job they do, how successful they are, how their marriage turns out. Shame is one of those things, it's a, it's a label that when you wear it, you might not be aware that other people know, but how about this? When someone is full of shame, everyone knows it. It's a visible thing. Shame tries to root itself in identity, and that's what Jesus has come to set us free, that you're not who the enemy says, you're who 
I say, the songs we're singing today, I'm a child of God. When you sing that, those should not be mere words. There should be a joy inside of you. You are not a child of the enemy. You're not a child of this world. And you're not a child of darkness. You're a child of God. Man, you're free. There's power in that. Shame is what lingers after you've asked for forgiveness and it's been granted. When you've blown it and done something wrong, and you've said the words, I'm sorry, forgive me. What should happen at that point is that you are able, if you understand what God has done for you, God forgives us and expects us when we say, God, I was wrong, forgive me. God expects you to move forward, not live in the place of what you did yesterday. Yes or no? This is what shame does. Once you've asked for forgiveness and forgiveness has been granted, shame keeps you in the place. It lingers after you've been forgiven. It's when you can't forgive yourself, when you can't let go of it. In fact, when someone is shaming you, that's what they're doing. They're not letting go of who you used to be. That makes sense? Shame's a powerful issue. Shame holds a person in bondage. Again, guilt says, I did something bad. Shame will say, I am bad. Conviction says, you're not acting like who you really are. Condemnation says, you're acting like exactly what you are. I wrote these three things down to try to explain shame. Maybe this helps. Shame is shared. If you have shame in your life, the number one reason to deal with shame is so that you don't pass it on to the people you love. If you have children and you are a person who lives with shame, shame is a communicable disease. I'll explain it to you. Um, If you are in a position at a job, uh, male or female, and you have a boss who berates you, embarrasses you, you do know there are jobs like that, right? Last night I say that. (laughs) My daughter, who's my admin... She's just like into the message. And so I go, if you work for a job where they berate you, and she's like, yes. (laughs) So I stop and I'm like, what? And she's like, no, no. She actually called me last night. Dad, I just want you to know, I love to work for you. (laughs) She said I was just into the message. I got it. It's all good. I knew you were like that. (laughs) So if you work for a person who shames you, they berate you, they embarrass you publicly, they they do things in front of other people, uh, even privately, if they connect, uh, you know, if, if it's not how you did your job, but again, they're connecting your character, you're just no good. Think that person, the anger that wells up on the inside of that person, think about how they act when they come home and who they take it out on. Shame becomes a communicable disease because if you're shamed in public at a particular place, when you go home, anyone that you have power over, if you don't get rid of shame, you will end up using shame on that person. Uh, A woman who, um, so we have this whole issue today with, um, (laughs) boy, so I don't mean it as a political statement, but just simply uh, this this me too issue. And, And women who have been told, uh, you know, the way that, what your body is for. A woman who has been shamed in her body, right? And that doesn't get taken care of. 
the way that that woman can then make her daughter feel. I'm just talking now, okay? It, it just, it, it, you, shame, it's a communicable disease. It, it carry, the number one reason that if you have it, you want to deal with it is so that your children never have to, man. They just never have to. It's, it's the reason you want to deal with that thing. Shame is a, you know, if you're, um, if you grew up in a situation uh, without, and maybe you come from not much. So the word, my family, uh, when I was small, my biological father, very, very poor, very poor, and had nothing. And the identity that comes with that and the shame that comes with that. So words like, you know, that, that's just not for people like us. That was the kind of thing. That's not for, we don't go to those kind of restaurants. They sound so simple in its wording, but you're communicating shame to a person. Do you hear me right now? Yes. The reason you want to deal with it is so that your children never have to. Shame is a, a communicable... Shame is shared. Here, here's the second one. Shame hinders your ability to be free. If, uh, if the Bible says that it was for freedom that Jesus set us free, he set us free from shame. The enemy works overtime in shame to keep you from being free. Here's how I would phrase it in a sentence. Um, what shame does is convince us that if people really knew who we were, they wouldn't love us. And so it keeps us from actually ever connecting and really come. You know what shame does? Shame causes you to hide. That's what shame really does. And the problem with it is that you can be around, you can be around several hundred people and nobody knows who you are. Because you're afraid that if they really did what the enemy tells you, if people really knew who you are, they would reject you and they wouldn't like you. And so what, frame, uh, what shame does, fr shame puts us in that, that mindset, in that frame of we can't, really ever, we can't really ever come into deep relationship and come into community because if people knew, they would reject me. And man, do you know the one place where it should be okay to not be okay? And that's not to make excuse to say that if you... Look at me. I'll just say it that way. It's okay to not be okay. But God loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you not okay. Does that make... In church, so many times, instead of being the place where we allow people to come in and actually say, I need community and I need to be loved and I've got so much junk in my life, I need to get rid of it. What we turn church into, it's the, it's the dating game. You dress up a little bit. You're on your best behavior. You don't really cross a line because you're hoping that maybe there'll be a second date. You can come back. <laughs> and I get the idea that, you know, you don't just come in and throw up on everybody. That's not it either. <laughs> Nobody's excited about that. But there has to be, every one of us need at least one person in our life we can actually be authentic with, yes or no. So we all agree with that, but my question to you, and it's rhetorical, please don't. Who's the person? Who is it? 
It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. And I don't mean that mean, and I don't mean that ugly. You will not find freedom in confessing simply to God. God calls us to confess to each other in order to receive our healing. And what we've convinced ourselves is that shame, it puts us in this little circle. And as long as God knows I'm okay, yes, you should tell everything to Jesus, but you need a human. So now the question is, who's the human? Because that takes great risk. And church is not church until you can find someone. So is it your spouse? Mm, I would say uh, no. I don't hear what you said, but it was it good? Thank you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. As important as it is to be able to talk to your spouse, I would just say there's something. What you need is, uh, if you're a man, you need another man in your life. And if you're a woman, you need another woman in your life. You really do. And it's not to minimize or to bypass the relationship with your spouse, uh, for sure. Uh, but there's just certain things. Look, God intended some healing to take place in community, not outside of it. I get asked the question, Pastor, why don't you think we have miracles today like they had in the first century? Like we read the book of Acts, or we hear about these stories. Why don't you think we have those miracles today? Maybe we're not doing the things that the first century church did. I mean, could it be as simple as cause and effect? So I'll show you something that gets really bold here and really goes after it. Let me give you the third one, though. Shame disappears in community. Shame disappears in community. Shame is dealt with in community. Shame, uh, shame. when you are known, when you have that place where you are known, uh, it, it's, uh, here, here's the point of being known. Being known is not so, hey, here's my sin and I'm going to keep doing. Being known is being able to say, I'm struggling with this. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? Can you talk to me? Can, can you restore me? Am I making sense? This, this would have been a very familiar uh, understanding in the first century church, where I think in the Western church today, we, we live like cowboys, man. We, we are on our own, taking on the Wild West, doing our own thing. We're rugged individualists. And that's not what, that's not what the Bible's called us to be. Confession. Healing and experienced community are what the Bible calls for. This is the book of James, chapter 5, verse 16. Um, someone yelled out when I said, you've got to have someone you can tell. They said, uh, Jesus, yes. I, I didn't mean, it, I didn't, if I came across like harsh, I didn't mean to come across. Of course, Jesus is that one. But there's actually two scriptures that come to the idea of confession. Uh, so one is found uh, in John. Uh, if we are faithful and just to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's true. But then there's this scripture also. Confess your... Don't choke on it. Confess your... 
to each other and pray for each other so that you may be what? So when I get asked the question, why don't we see healing like, like they did? Why don't we see the miracles? What if we're just refusing to do the things that allow for miracles to take place? Here's what we think. God's not showing up. What if we're not showing up? What if we're not committing ourselves to? So uh, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. What it's saying is that when we practice what God tells us to practice and do it the way that God tells us to do it, there's power in it. A, a, a byproduct is healing, but there's power uh, in, in the prayer of a person. When you come to a person and say, listen, now not just anybody, again, the, wisdom with this and the who and the how but i i i've got two people in my life three actually uh dan demay is one dan and i have made a commitment that we can say to each other anything and say to each other what our sin is and be able to say to each other dan and our computers talk to each other and we get a report from each other literally and dan has full right to ask me what were you looking at here and I have the right to ask him. And you know the one thing about that? When you know somebody's looking, they're like, what's a computer? Um, when you know someone is looking, not judging, because God knows we don't need another judge in our lives. Agreed? The power to overcome is not found in your self-determination and how strong your will is. If your will was strong enough to do it, you wouldn't have needed Jesus to come in the first place. Strength is found and healing is found when other people help pull. Dan and I can talk to each other. And so you're like, but you're a pastor. How could... Do you, do you ever struggle with lust? No, no. The day I became a Christian, God did something miraculous to my eyes. Can you handle that? Do you know the one place we should be talking about this is church, and it's the one place we're afraid to talk about it? How do we get free? How do we overcome The sins that so easily beset and entangle us and keep us from running our race effectively is what the book of Hebrews says. God, how many times I've been tripped up and had nobody there to help me get up? Can your pastor be human? I'll just give you the second one real quick because there's a point of action I want to save time for. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got a little bit of a, of a cold I'm fighting. So um, The second one just simply, twin yokes of slavery. Remember, you know, the Bible uses that idea of Jesus set us free, so don't, don't let sin come back in and, and yoke you again 
So I just see these two things as like, they're just so common. Shame is one and how it works. The second one is deception. Believers that allow deception. Deception's a powerful thing. I think what makes deception so powerful is that you think you would recognize deception and that's why it makes deception so powerful. It's just not always easily seen. It's like camouflage. Uh, the book of Joshua Joshua tells the children of Israel, I set before you this day uh, life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. If it's just so obvious, why do we have to be encouraged to pick the right thing? Uh, the fruit that the woman was given when she sinned. If you go back and read that, it says that when she looked at it, it was pleasing to the eye. It looked good to eat, and it made sense to her. She wasn't just like, hey, how can I blow it? How can I... Most of us don't wake up in the morning going, God, how can I really screw my life up today? (laughs) True? It's not the way that it works. Deception is that funny thing that you just don't recognize it when it's when it's coming your way. Okay, um, the book of Joshua is a book that has meant a lot to me in my life. Um, Joshua's commanded over and over again, be strong and very courageous, be strong and very courageous, be strong and very courageous. I, I pray that over my life constantly as a leader. God, let me be strong and let me be very courageous. Most of the time I know what to do, but the truth of the matter is I don't always have the courage to do You ever recognize that truth? Most of us know what to do. It's the courage to do it that's hard. So I pray for God, give me courage. Let me me have courage. Let me me operate in courage. So I'm going to tell you a story real quickly here that goes with deception and how deception works. And at first, they may seem very far apart from each other. But um, as I'm apt to do, give me a second to tie a thread together because I think there's something really cool here. Uh, Moses was commissioned by God to take the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. And you remember that when they left Egypt, they had a problem, man. You, you, <laughs> you can take the person out of Egypt, but you can't always get Egypt out of the person. And so for 40 years, an entire generation had to wander in the desert until that generation died off so that the next generation who had faith to believe the promises of God could enter the promised land. Moses tolerated more than 2 million people and their complaints on a day-to-day basis and did a phenomenal job. But Moses made one critical mistake. Moses had a temper. And Moses, it's one of those things I really don't understand because he did so much. The Bible calls him the meekest man. He did so much for God. But the one time he blows it, he disqualifies himself in leadership and he's not allowed to take Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. And that's where Joshua, Joshua is his protege. Joshua is a younger man. God allowed Moses to go to a high mountain and look down into the promised land and told him, because you sinned as the leader and you carried my name, Moses, I'm going to have to treat you in a way that shows people you can't do this. So you lose out on the opportunity to go into the promised land, but I promise that they're going to get there. And he used Joshua to do it. And so God gathered Joshua and all of the people of Israel And he gave them this instruction, when you cross the Jordan, every place you put your foot belongs to you. It's your promise, it's your inheritance, but here's what you have to do. There are people who live in that land that you are going to have to fight 
and you cannot have any mercy. Do not make any deals with them. Do not, don't live with them. Don't intermarry with them. Here's, you, you need to destroy them and get them out of there. Now, whether you think that's, there, there's a reason for it, I'm not teaching about that right now. But the bottom line was that's what God had commanded them to do. So Israel crosses the Jordan. The first city they come to is the city of Ai. Ai, that's literally the name of it. They destroy Ai. The next one, Jericho. Remember, they march around it seven times, blow the trumpet. Joshua at the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. Okay. So they have these two incredible victories, and their fame and the fear of these people spreads throughout that area that God gave them. And the people in the in the area, knew, man, we got a battle on our hands and God's on their side. What are we going to do? And there was a small tribe called the Gibeonites that lived on the other side of the promised land that God had given them. And they decided to use trickery in order to make a deal. And so here's what they did. They put on a bunch of rags and they got some bread and they left it out so it got moldy and some water they got real cloudy because they left it set out for a long time. And they, they made themselves look very poor and very humble and very meager. And then they made their way across the desert and they found Joshua and the Israelites. And this is what they told them. We're very humble people. We have nothing. Uh, we are nothing. We've heard about all that you've done as you've come into this land. And we know that God is with you. And we don't want to be destroyed. So we're just asking you, would you let us live? And if you do, we will be your slaves, your servants. We will, we will do whatever you tell us to do. But remember what God had told them? Don't make any deals. Don't cut any slack. You need to route these people out of here or you're going to be dealing with the problem for the rest of your life. And here's what the Bible says Joshua and the people did. When they were presented with this group of Gibeonites who said, we have nothing. The Gibeonites said, look at our bread and look at our water. Look, look how moldy. We're, we're nothing. We're poor. And so here's what they did. The Israelites examined their food, the Gibeonites' food, but they did not what? They did not, they did not consult or seek the Lord. Look at me real quick because I'm going someplace. And here it is. This is the way deception works so effectively well in a believer's life. We look at things we can see in the natural and we say, oh, it must be okay. It must not be a big deal. They must be very weak. They must be very small. They must be very insignificant. I mean, look at how moldy that is and look at how dirty that is. And they cut a deal with them and Joshua gave them his word. We will not destroy you. And zoom forward 3,000 years Israel is still fighting the people that Joshua would not deal with. Now, you can consider that political right now, whatever. My point simply is this. When you look at physical things, but you don't consult the Lord, you open yourself up for deception, yes or no? Yes. And this is where so many believers end up in so much problems. They enter into business deals. They look at a contract or the money or what it's going to be. They look at it with their eyes and they smell it. They use their senses and they say, this must be a good deal. But they don't consult the Lord. We'll marry people because they're beautiful. 
And because we think they'll make us happy. And because everything on the outside looks right. But we don't consult the Lord. Tell me what happens. You with me? You love me? I'm just trying to tell you that the whole idea of, of the yoke of slavery and how it enters back into our life. The Bible says you've got to stand strong. Jesus sets us free from shame. He sets us free from the ways that we've been deceived by the enemy. But if we don't do the things that are necessary, man, it sneaks back in. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you in Matthew 24. Watch out. Paul the apostle said, exhort each other daily so that none are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. When I was in Bible college, I had a professor that was talking to us, uh, pastors, soon to be pastors. We were close to graduation. And he was talking about a, how a pastor should live his life. He was one of those old fashioned, he said things like this a pastor's grass should be the nicest grass in the neighborhood. Literally, that's what he said. I'm, I'm sure if that guy came and saw my house, he would think, what a failure. This, this. He, I mean, he was just like, your house should be painted. He was just like, there was a time that there was a respect for ministers, and part of it was, it was a religious thing. That, and I don't think it was necessarily, it put, it put him in a, a false sense of, but he made this statement, man, and he talked about pastors should be sincere people. And the word sincere, S-I-N-C-E-R-E, sincere, uh, it, it's a Latin derivation. And at one time uh, in the ancient world, uh, there was this beautiful porcelain that they would make and sell. Very expensive, very rare. I mean, only wealthy people could afford to buy it. But when it was being fired in the kiln, if the temperature was too hot or it was left in too long, it would, it would put hairline cracks in it. And it would basically, it, it would go from being value to nothing. And so the way dishonest merchants would sell it, they would find this white pearly wax and they would wax the entire porcelain with it and it would get down in the cracks so that if you looked at it, uh, it would look like it was good. And the only way you could tell was to hold it up to the sunlight to see whether or not the sun shone through the cracks. And the word sincere means in the light. And he was saying about our lives that our lives should be able to be held to the light so that people could see they're the real deal. We're not faking it. We're not covering it up. Look at me. Everyone in this room has cracks. Everybody in this room has areas where you're a sinner and you blow it and you need help. Do you agree with me? Okay, we're all in the same boat, man. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. Amen. We need Him. But the idea of living a sincere life, man, we're called to be people who are of the light. To live in the light. When you live in the light, it reveals things. Yes. Right? Yes. But that's the whole point, man. We live in the light. We need a savior. We're not denying, acting, faking, judging. What it should be is that we're saying, hey, come in here and let the light of God shine through and show. 
Here's the areas we need help with. But if you always live in the darkness, nothing changes. Nothing ever changes. That makes sense? Okay, I'm done with my message. So here's what I'd like to do today to practice a little bit of what the scripture says. Confess your sins one to another to receive your healing. I recognize if I were to say to you, hey, turn to your neighbor and confess away. We're not going to do that. That's silly. But so here's my point. How do we go from here to here if we want to do what the Bible says? How do we, how do, we do it? Do we just ignore it? Or is there a way for us to practice? All right, so these little pieces of paper that should have been on your seat, I hope you didn't discard them and push them under your neighbor's chair in front of you. <laughs> Jay's going to come and play a song right now. We actually changed it from last night because we want it to be a contemplative song that allows for the Holy Spirit to have a chance to minister. We don't want you to stand. We don't want you to sing. I don't want you to engage your mind with anything else except to ask the Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life that's become a yoke that won't let me free? So look at me. Do you have an addiction? Because we live in a day and a time where there's so much of it going on. I'm not asking you whose fault it is. I'm not asking you what happened. I'm asking you if ultimately you want to be set free. How are you going to be healed? My Bible says confess your sin and God heals you. Are you dealing with an issue in your life that someone's done to you? You know, the one thing about shame is that when someone has done something to you, sometimes you carry more shame than the person who did the offense. And it binds you to a place in your life where you can't ever get free. What are you going to do with that? This allows for anonymity. You don't need to put your name on it. You don't need to put a date on it. Maybe even thinking, I can't even write this with the person sitting next to me. I get it. What we're about to do is dangerous. It's dangerous. It's risky. But I just think, I don't want to play church. I don't want to act religious. I don't want to come in here and, man, I, I want to leave free. I want to live my life in freedom, and I want you to live your life in freedom. So maybe it's anger. Maybe it's words. Maybe it's violence. I don't know. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's disillusionment. Maybe your life's a con. Maybe this is God asking you, do you want to be free? Maybe it's time to quit playing. In the very back, turn around real quick. You'll see the words freedom above the window. And then there's one, two, three, four, 
five, I don't know what to call them, things Terry built. <laughs> Walls. A confession wall, I guess. Right on there. You don't need to fold it, wad it, don't sign it, because we don't want to know. But we're just leaving. Look how many from just last night. It's hundreds. We're just going to leave them there all weekend. And when we're done with the weekend, we're destroying them. Because Jesus nailed them to the cross. Took them out of the way so that the offense is not any longer able to be brought as an accusation against you. When you ask for forgiveness, shame comes to remind you, but forgiveness doesn't remember at all. So when you write it and you leave it, walk out of here free. And if the devil brings it back to you, remind him it was nailed to a cross. It was nailed to a cross. If you have nothing to write, there's no condemnation. I realize not everyone's in community enough to even write. But if you do have something, if you need to even move so you can write it, don't play today. Jay's going to sing. As you're done writing it, here's the dismissal. When you're ready to get up and go put it in there, go. And when you're done, leave. You don't need to come back. We won't pray. I'm hoping that you all don't rush to do it at one time. Do it as the Holy Spirit lets you and leave it. Think about what you're doing and then leave it right there. And that's it. Made my heart whole again. 
healed and forgiven Look where my chains are now Death has no hold on me Cause your grace holds me now